There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Irish Economics Podcast. So today's episode is on the economics of infrastructure investment and the public-private mix in public service delivery. So the central question here is, uh, why should the private sector or that's private businesses from Ireland and abroad, why should they participate in the delivery of public services? And this is investments in infrastructure like hospitals, roads and telecoms. And if there's a rationale for this, then what's the best way to go about incorporating the private sector into the provision of public services? So... We'll discuss the general idea here and Ireland's experience in this regard, which has been met with various degrees of success. So I'm joined by Professor Owen Reeves, who's head of the Department of Economics at the University of Limerick, and uh, also Donald Palchik, who is lecturer in economics at the University of Limerick. So welcome both. Thanks. So I suppose to start from the beginning, then uh, we'll just think about the theory and the background behind public-private partnerships. What exactly are they and how should they be used best? Yeah, I think the starting point here, Niall, really is if you consider the fact that today most countries, including Ireland, face huge challenges around infrastructure policy, uh, particularly in relation to actually investing in new uh, infrastructure and actually renewing old infrastructure. Uh, This is a major issue for economies, especially where there's a need for fiscal discipline or there are fiscal constraints that apply. Uh, And when one considers that there's in the region, I've seen one estimate uh, that's States, it comes from McKinsey that suggests that there's 120 trillion uh, of private finance swishing around the world looking for a home. Um, governments are eager to tap into that private finance uh, in order to direct towards the uh, provision is essentially of public infrastructure like the types of assets you describe, be it in transport infrastructure like motorways or light rail systems, water infrastructure, social infrastructure like uh, schools and hospitals and so on. So this is one of the, the rationales for uh, the devising of a model that we call the public-private partnership, right. uh, which is really a procurement mechanism and a means of a financing be funding and providing uh, actual infrastructure. So essentially what a PPP is, it's a long-term infrastructure contract whereby the private sector uh, put the upfront finance, okay, uh, put that up uh, for for investment. Uh, they then design 
they build uh, and they operate the asset over the life of the contract, which is normally, you know, a 25, 30, 40 year period. Uh, and one of the big advantages for governments as a result of the private sector coming with private finance is that it can uh, be treated uh, off balance sheet depending on the fiscal rules that apply in a country but that was a big attraction mm-hmm. for the use of PPPs in the UK which is probably the world leader in the use of PPP. So what's off balance sheet what, what does that mean? What that essentially means in terms of the calculation of the fiscal aggregates like the general government deficit for instance um, or the level of uh, government debt in a sense they can you can you can the the, the rules allow for the spacing out over the of the payment back okay for, for for the infrastructure over the life of the asset okay whereas under the old fiscal rules the government would borrow Sorry, not the old fiscal rules, but rather um, the old way of doing things like traditional procurement methods. The government would borrow, and that would show up as borrowings on the, uh, on the government books uh, in the first two years you know, of, the, uh, of the project life cycle. Mm-hmm. Under PPP, because the private sector does the borrowing and the government pays back then over the life of the contract, the, what's shown up in terms of government expenditure is spread out over time and you don't have this big hit on government debt at the very beginning. Okay, but... The overall liability to the government is, doesn't change much, does it? Absolutely. So some, you know, so, so, some economists have referred to this as the fiscal illusion. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, an economist will see it exactly for what it is. You know, yeah. the government is still paying for it here. Now, you could, of course, there's another attraction is that the funding, which is the payback over time, some of that can come from user charges. And there might be an attraction around that. Think in terms of toll roads and so on. But we yeah. can maybe per- perhaps get back to that. But you're right. You see it for what it is. There's no free lunch here. The government and or uh, the service user is actually going to pay uh, back for this over the life of the contract. So um, even though it's an attraction, we can see through that as economists. As yeah. And then the other aspect is that the cost of borrowing for a private sector is greater than... than yeah, well, that, no, that is a, that's a really big issue because, you know, the, we now have, I mean, in global terms... Um, the, the use of PPP really kicked off in 1992 when the UK launched what they called the Private Finance Initiative. Right. Okay. Uh, so other countries joined in, uh, as it were, and followed suit in, in, in subsequent years. So Ireland actually announced the first PPPs in 1999, seven years later. I mean, having looked across the water, seeing sim- facing similar challenges, even more acute in Ireland at the time because the economy was really growing rapidly and there were clear infrastructure shortages. So the government came up with this idea, we'll experiment with PPP, they seem to be working okay in, uh, in the UK, yeah. uh, and we'll pilot a number of projects. Um, so we've now had about 20 years experience uh, with the use of PPP in Ireland. So roughly about five to six billion uh, in, uh, worth in terms of capital funding uh, of investment has happened through PPP. Uh, the payback on that over time will be expected to be in the region of about 10 billion. They're the commitments, you know, right. under the, the total PPP programme. The assets that have been built to date, I would say roads or motorways dominates yeah. uh, in terms of the aggregate value uh, of the assets that have been built. But PPPs have been very prevalent in, we'll say, social infrastructure, particularly schools and other educational facilities. 
community. Yeah. So I think in the region of 27 schools uh, have been built under, you know, bundled projects. You've got five or six schools in one contract. Um, the recently, are the ones that are currently under construction, the primary care centres, yeah. um, other assets like the National Convention Centre, the Criminal Courts Complex and so on. So these are the assets that are, that, that, that are there. They're up and running. And when you stand back and you say, well, look, they've delivered, they've actually delivered the infrastructure. We've got what we wanted. Yeah. Uh, that appears to be an indicator of success. But a few moments ago, you asked me a question about the cost of borrowing. You know, as economists, we need to stand back and think, OK, how do we assess PPPs in terms of whether they were successful or not? And success can mean different things to different people. Yeah. But for economists, I think, uh, success is measured in terms of, we'll say, efficiency or cost efficiency. Mm. Uh, and you kind of, you, you steered me towards where we need to go because when you consider uh, the, the cost efficiency aspect, uh, the language tends to refer to uh, consider this in terms of value for money. Uh, but if value for money is to be achieved under PPP, two major hurdles has to be jumped. One is uh, the higher cost of private borrowing. You have to get you have to create efficiencies that uh, outweigh those higher costs. So typically, it depends, of course, on the country. It depends at the point in time. But the literature would suggest, on average, the private cost of borrowing will be between one and three percent higher for the private sector. Okay. Right. Uh, and if I often when I explain this in, in in the classroom, I tend to suggest if you know if if your mortgage uh, the rate of interest on your mortgage went up by three percent. You know, over a you know, twenty twenty five year uh, mortgage, that would be a, that would have a major major impact in terms of what you pay back over time. Yeah. So that's a big hurdle. But the second hurdle, and one that gets probably less attention, but it gets plenty of attention in the the relevant literature, are what we call the transaction costs. They're the costs of organising. The, the 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 procurement and the management of PPPs from start to finish, uh, they are shown to be quite significant, uh, and it can be, I would say, ballpark about ten percent of the project costs under PPP, which would be higher than under traditional procurement. So, if you consider the higher cost of borrowing the higher level of transaction costs to actually make, uh, to ensure that PPP delivers value for money relative to traditional procurement. And we need to maybe talk about that as well because that's problematic. But to deliver value for money vis-a-vis traditional procurement, uh, enough efficiencies have to be generated in order to uh, account for those uh, th- those extra costs. Yeah, so, th- so to leverage on transaction costs, that's basically the cost of the public body dealing with the private body. That's the just to, in case people aren't familiar with that. One thing that just came to mind before we move on is there's all these additional costs, but would there have been hurdles, political hurdles, that were able to be jumped over with a PPP that maybe wouldn't under Well, well that's, that's, that's interesting because when, uh, if you look back at the history uh, of, say, PPP, you, if you just look at, let's say, the UK and Ireland as, as good examples, um, the hurdle, the political hurdles weren't that big at, originally right. because the idea, if you think back in 1999, that was the year Aircom was privatised, for instance. So the idea of, uh, of privatising uh, public services was wasn't exactly anathema to the government at the time. Uh, Irish governments are, you know, they tend to be, you know, they're certainly not very left of centre. And so they're open to the to the idea of privatisation, generally speaking, but in a a cautious sense. Uh, And that's why PPP was, uh, it got a smooth passage. Uh, at the very beginning, yeah. back in the back, back in the late nineteen nineties, but that has actually changed because we've learned a lot over the twenty years uh, that have gone by in the meantime with the experience of PPP. And I would be of the opinion that PPP now um, are 
treated far more sceptically uh, by by government. And right. it's because we know more about how they work or rather how they don't work. Right, okay, that's yeah. interesting. So you mentioned the traditional procurement. So what would be yeah. issues there? If you're, if you're, you're to assess PPP, you have to compare it to something. So, I mean, the, the government has choices when it uh, has to make decisions around the provision of infrastructure. So they can use state-owned enterprises. State-owned enterprises, for instance, will be a channel for about a, I think it's a quarter um, of, or a fifth of the total amount that will be spent under the current National Development Plan. So that's one vehicle uh, through which governments can channel finance for the provision of infrastructure. But the others are more market-oriented approaches, and I think PPP falls into that. But PPP uh, is is really an alternative to what we call traditional procurement, whereby the government would, if you go turn the clock back 20 years and you think of a traditionally built road, the government would hold uh, a tender uh, for a contract to design the road, okay, and then another contract to construct it. So separate contracts, they'd be short enough uh, in, in time-wise, uh, and when the contract, uh, when, when, the, when the asset is then in operation, it reverts back to the ownership and the control and the management of the state. Uh, but under PPP, the private sector, for instance, is now operating schools. It's operating yeah. the National Convention Centre. It operates the motorways, and the contracts are for 20 or 30 years. Uh, and it's a completely different there's a lot of virtue to that because the advantages as we talked about the hurdles that must be overcome in order to generate the efficiencies under PPP well what theory essentially suggests is that the two advantages are that by virtue of integrating the different elements of the project life cycle you know the design the build the operate the finance into one single contract this creates incentives for the private sector to uh, economise and to uh, ensure that the quality of the asset that they'll eventually end up operating uh, is sufficient so I mean they have an incentive to make sure that they don't um, cut back on construction costs yeah okay because they'll have to deal with that under the terms of the contract because they have to maintain and operate it over a 20 or 30 year period okay and what that actually means really is that they're taking on risks okay so risk is being shared under the ppp model with the private sector and that's another advantage because if that's nailed down pretty well in a contract and the contract is well managed and the private sector is monitored closely yeah. Uh, if they screw up, you know, and if they if they don't perform, they should therefore be penalised. Yeah. Now, all again, this sounds good in practice, but the reality uh, worldwide, using international data, is that over 50% of PPP contracts tend to be renegotiated. Now, what that means, and these are the kind of things that people in this field tend to study, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. So, I mean, on the one hand, you could say renegotiations are inevitable on, in terms of a long-term infrastructure contract because circumstances change. Yeah. But the data shows that a lot of renegotiations actually happen in the early start, in the early uh, period of the contract, over the first two years. Uh, and the majority of renegotiations are to the advantage of the private sector. So this raises questions about whether the private sector contractors maybe you know, lowball in yeah. order to win contracts, whether they're behaving opportunistically. Uh, and Wants to get the foot in the door. Exactly, <laughs> which, ra- which again brings you back to, this, to, to where we started. You know, ultimately, do we think that PPP will yield value for money? Yeah. Uh, and I suppose, I mean, I, I think about these things a lot. And I, if I was to give a very simple answer is A, uh, there's not a lot of very reliable empirical evidence to show uh, that it does or doesn't one way or the other. Um, But if one was to advise governments uh, in relation to how how PPPs could yield the advantages that proponents would suggest, it comes down to governance. It comes down to 
good management. Uh, it comes down to the public sector uh, learning how to deal with the private sector in this new environment whereby they're, v- they're flocking to infrastructure projects yeah. if, the, if the terms and conditions are right. But that's really challenging for governments. So in this country... Um, you know, in the mid two thousands, we established the the government established the National Development Finance Agency, a specialist procurement agency uh, for uh, the delivery of PPPs. And there's evidence to suggest that there's enough expertise there uh, to um, kind of uh, give us comfort in the sense that we can we we can. Um, believe to a degree, to, to a large degree, that they've managed a number of these PPPs pretty well. Yes. Uh, roads infrastructure was procured separately by the, what was the National Roads Authority, now Transport Infrastructure Ireland. They built up a lot of expertise as well. Uh, but what I'm trying to get at here is that those institutions that need to be put in place in order to ensure that the governance uh, of PPPs is efficient, you can't take those for granted. They don't exist in every country. Okay. Uh, and it takes time for them to, to build up, actually. Uh, so that has happened in Ireland to a degree, but there's still an awful lot we need to know about yeah. how these have performed. So, yeah. So so one, when you mentioned the risk sharing, so that seems attractive in the sense that we don't know what how the costs are going to turn out and it can be a big burden for the public sector to take on this, the taxpayer. So it's good to strike a, a certain price early on and let, let the private sector take on that risk. But if it's going to be renegotiated, well, then they're not sharing that risk as well as the, the exactly that's one of the you know that's one of the pitfalls that's one of the dangers you know of long-term yeah. contracting that's i mean that happens in private private contracting public private contracting so uh, contract and so on and i mean long-term contracting is very prevalent in the private business world uh so that that's a challenge for all types of uh, of contracting but i would um you know you, you have to look at individual cases to understand how this actually plays out. Yeah. Uh, and one of the cases that's you know on the agenda right now is the the case of the national broadband plan. So this is being procured using uh, a PPP, and it will be the biggest PPP that was ever uh, contracted for in this country. Yeah. Uh, now we're at the very late stages. It looks like the government, uh, against a lot of advice, is going to sign a final contract uh, before the end of the year to roll out rural uh, broadband infrastructure uh, to rural Ireland. Yeah. Uh, but we've learned a lot about that contract over the last number of n- months, and one of the m- many issues that have been highlighted are concerns about whether this PPP contract will actually um, contain the kind of provisions that we'd like to see to ensure that risk has been optimally shared between the parties uh, and that the private sector that is going to win this contract, going to sign this contract, is actually taking on enough risk. Yeah. Um, so it's a feature of all PPPs, but it's really, really important. It's one of the main drivers of the case for PPPs. Um, okay. So maybe we can move to Donald. You've got some experience on, on, on broadband um, you've done some research on maybe the, the benefits of broadband in different regions. Maybe we could just touch on that first to set the context, and then we could go on to. Yeah, I mean th- that research was done with uh, with colleagues in the the uh, at the time the SRI um, uh, people like Edgar Morgan, Sean Lyons, uh, and Darren McCoy. Um, but really, that 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 paper was looking at new firm locations. So. And was looking at all types of infrastructure. So, what are the the main drivers of the decision for for firms to locate, and obviously broadband was found to be a significant component of that. But yeah. um, it was really, I think, you had to look at all the different types of infrastructure that were in place um, in that particular region um, along with that. So, 
they wouldn't really have been looking at the, the benefits of yeah, connecting a, a farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere in, in the countryside. It was more looking at new firm location. Yeah, but, sure. But still relevant, obviously, to everything. Um, no, I'm picking up on what Owen said. I mean, the the model that's been currently used for the National Broadband Plan, um, which is a it's a it's slightly different to the types of PPPs that Owen was talking about, in that it's a, it's a gap funding model. Yeah. Um, which is essentially almost a more extreme form of PPP in that normally with a standard public-private partnership at the end of 25 or 30 years, the asset reverts to public ownership. Whereas with the gap funding model, um, the asset actually remains in private ownership. So, the, you know, the government will effectively put some money in, as does the private sector, but it's the private sector that will end up uh, owning the asset at the end of that lifetime. Right. And at the time it was put forward, um, when they were considering the ownership options, they, they did look at a classic PPP along the lines where the, the asset reverts, and they looked at the gap funding model. And the decision went, was to go with the gap funding model um, based on the assumption that there would be strong competition for the contract and that incumbent firms, and they were name-checked, uh, such as AIR, yeah. and the CIRO, the uh, ESP Vodafone joint venture, um, would attach a a significant strategic value to winning that contract, integrating it into its own existing infrastructure, etc. So they would bid competitively. Yeah, so there yeah. Would, be, would be strong competition from incumbent industry players, basically, um, for that uh, contract. And the, the entire rationale for pursuing that model was hinged on that. And a, a, in that mix was also it was expected that if there was such strong competition, if there was a big strategic value being placed by the bidders on that contract, it would lower the subsidy to government and would deliver this infrastructure at the lowest cost possible to the exchequer. Um, But those assumptions were, uh, you know, they were very weak uh, to Mm -hmm. begin with in that really you had only two main players, AIR and CSIRO. And at the time that this decision was made, AIR had already announced that it was planning to invest um, in bro- in fibre broadband in, I think, about you know, 300,000 premises within the the so-called intervention area in in, uh, in rural Ireland, yeah. which is already kind of signalling that, hang on a sec, the whole plan might change significantly if AIR is to follow through on that, because now if they take the best 300,000, the less lucrative in terms of the commercial return yeah. premises are the only ones left who's really going to want to bid for, you know, bid for them. But the government ploughed ahead and all the different kind of stages of the of the saga that we've gone through in terms of CSIRO exiting the competition, AIR itself exiting the competition and the huge escalation in cost that we've seen with the preferred bidder, Granahan McCourt, um, the only one left in the game at the moment. Um, it all comes back to that decision at the very beginning, let's go with this gap funding model and assume competition in what is a very, it's not like a motorway. This is a highly complex yeah. sector where the technology is constantly changing. The intervention area can change. Competition is always evolving in, in certain yeah. parts of the market. And it just simply was an so, ill-suited model. It, so, so the companies bidding for this uh, contract, was it a standard contract to, 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 to serve every household in the country or was there variation around that? How did that work? Um, it was, I think it was initially split up into two or three different lots. I can't remember how many lots. They split the country into a number of different um, lots and you could yeah. bid for one section of the country or the whole. Yeah, um, okay. But effectively, um, all those that did bid, bid for the whole contract. But if, it, it was to meet the, the Department of Communications 
um, criteria, which was to connect every single household in the intervention area. Connect every household to, to fibre broadband? Fibre in the vast majority and yeah. only in a limited number of cases where it just simply was not feasible would they look at fixed wireless or other types of solutions like right, that. Okay, okay. Yeah. Effectively, yeah, the vast majority would be through fibre connections. Okay, so there's no cost-benefit analysis between the distributed areas and the rural areas? Um, in terms of the different technologies. Yeah, or was it was was there much economic analysis into the cost-benefit of, of the additional cost of getting one, bringing fibre out to rural Mayo, for example, versus serving it through these... Or was, was it a... Was it like a rule of thumb type of thing? I'm not sure exactly how they went about the cost benefit. Now, on, yeah. in, in that, in, in they did conduct obviously a cost benefit analysis, and there was a huge, there were big issues with that too. Because right. um, I think at one stage, when the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform deeper, uh, uh, the the infamous kind of memo from Robert Watt, the Secretary General of of, uh, of that department, um, to the Secretary General of Communications, I mean, they had huge issues with the cost benefit analysis uh, in terms of. Uh, I think it was an overestimation of benefits, was it? That's right. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, I mean the, the CBA, the, the information that's in the public domain about the CBA is quite limited. Yeah. Um, yeah. The only information that uh, that has been placed in the public domain uh, has been around the very simple CBA, either to go ahead with the project or not to go ahead with it. Right. With, with mm-hmm. it. Um, and it's only when things like... Um, Deeper, for instance, voicing concerns about the project that you, as you know, an outsider, get a glimpse of what's really going on in the inside. Uh, because had they not expressed those concerns and put them on the record, we'd be none the wiser about the fact that, as Donald alluded to, the fact that um, Deeper highlighted how there were changes to the estimated costs and benefits in the run-up to the final uh, right. uh, finalisation of the CBA, uh, and they also questioned. Uh, they raised a lot of questions about the uh, the valuation of the, the the benefits in particular. Now, of course, it's very difficult to put to identify every single benefit and to put a value on it. But the consultants that were hired to do it were pretty well paid to do so, yeah. uh, and we're at the stage now where one of the suggestions that has come from the. Uh, joint directors committee that looked into the conduct of the procurement so far uh, is that the CBA be done again um, and that you know that just high, high, highlights this whole issue around governance uh, of infrastructure policy it's complex mm-hmm. uh, and it's really important that you get a right to ensure that you know public you know public money is spent as efficiently as possible in terms of where does it go from here have you any take on, on how you see things developing well it's it's hard to tell, but I mean, it looks very much like they're just going to sign off and reach financial close. So I know the Oireachtas Committee issued its its report after um, a number of different hearings. I mean, myself and Owen, we uh, we met with them right. and presented our criticisms, uh, but they met with PwC, they met with KPMG, they met with a lot of different uh, parties. They produced their report, which is obviously highly negative and made lots of different recommendations. But f- in terms of the government reaction, it looked very clear to me anyway that they're simply just going to proceed to financial close uh, okay. on this contract. So that's that's where it's going to go, and we'll just have to see how it all um, plays out. But a big issue here, and maybe something one didn't get into uh, on the PPP side of thing, will be the transparency and accountability around this. So if this contract is signed and does go ahead, I mean, key the, the key will always be what kind of information is going to be made publicly available on the financial returns 
uh, to this company on exactly how much subsidies obviously been paid to the, uh, you know, all of that type of information. Yeah. Up until only very recently, if you're looking at PPPs um, or even public infrastructure, it's just not in the public domain. It's post-project reviews, which were meant to have been carried out um, yeah. um, under the PPP guidelines in Ireland, it's only with the Public Accounts Committee um, taking a big review into PPPs um, last year and the year before that's almost forced certain departments to say, well, actually, yeah, we're going to start conducting these post-project reviews to start release more and more information. And the, the type of oversight that you need just for the general public or for, for academics like myself, Rowan, to be able to scrutinise it and say, is this doing what they're saying it would do? Um, simply has to, uh, um, we, we need to see more of that. If we're really to learn the lessons from the past and really see whether or not these things are delivering value for money, including the National Broadband Plan, the key to it all will be transparency yeah. and accountability around uh, the decisions that were made. But it seems like a recipe for disaster, giving a private company this key piece of infrastructure. And if you think about broadband becoming the centre, like the means of teleporting all sorts of telecommunications and entertainment and, and everything to households. And if you've one private company who are running that and deciding who gets the bandwidth and who sells it, it sounds like it's going to be very anti-competitive in the long run. Yeah, long run. yeah I mean, as much as they can, and this makes economic sense, they'll be using existing infrastructure, be it airs or ESPs or whoever, yeah. to, to roll out their network. But in terms of the ownership of it, I mean, I could... S- Look, if, if it had turned out that that had been the most competitive procurement process possible, that the subsidy had been, you know, minimised to the largest extent possible, you'd kind of say, OK, well, the government has got a key piece of infrastructure here for next to nothing. That's a good thing. But it, the, the problem with the model that we're looking at right now is it's actually the state that is putting in the vast majority of the investment that's required. Yeah. Uh, it's something... If you exclude VAT and you exclude maybe some of the contingent kind of subsidies that might have to be made under certain circumstances, it's still 2.1 billion of public funds that are being transferred to the private sector. 2.1 billion of what's the total then? Um, oh, well, so there's again, sorry. No, no, again, this this was a big part of the, you know, when the government were talking about investment, they used to bandy about a 5 billion figure and say yeah. it's, it's 5 billion euro in investment. But a lot of that, what they were calling investment, was actually OPEX in the future. So once it's been up, it's up and running, it's right. just the cost of maintaining, operating that network, etc. The upfront, the, the kind of in the first, you know, I think it's a seven year rollout. But in those first seven years, the upfront cost of rolling out that fiber and investing in the technology, the CapEx side of things, um, capital expenditure, that is almost entirely being funded by the government, that 2.1 billion of subsidy. The rest of the investment the government is talking about, if you looked at the, at the documents that were released, is more the the OPEX, which can be funded from user revenues in the yeah. future. Um, so really, it all boiled down to, I think it was about a 220 million equity injection from the preferred bidder and over 2 billion of a capital uh, subsidy paid for by the government as the company right. hits its milestones. But effectively, that company will end up owning that asset despite having put very little into it and have very little skin in the game in terms of its yeah. its initial equity contribution. Okay. Yeah, I see, this, this, raise, this brings us back to the question of, you know, risk sharing. Yeah. Because one of the risks, there are all sorts of risks attached, attached to a big infrastructure investment. Uh, but one of the advantages of PPP, we're told, is that the private 
company will take on the financial risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a, it's, a, it's an interesting case, really, the case of Ireland's National Broadband Plan, because you could see a lot of the features of, you know, uh, of PPP governance coming into play. Uh, and one is these issue, the issue that Donald raised around the need for openness, transparency, and so on, so that the you know the public can be res- be assured that things are done well. The government went to extraordinary lengths to uh, ensure that the kind of details we're discussing here didn't come out into the public domain. So the week that the preferred bidder was appointed, we still didn't know exactly what the private sector was put, the private company was putting in upfront in terms of finance for this project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was only by accident, I think one of the ministers let it slip in a radio interview that we learned that it was in the region of 220 million. But as Donald pointed out, if the government is actually going to pay in terms of uh, the subsidy in the region of 2.1 billion or possibly even more, the degree to which the private company has skin in the game or is taking financial risk is clearly not as as great as we might have thought to begin with. Now they are taking other risks. You know, we can we can rest, rest assured that that is actually the case. Yeah. But uh, given that there was no competition for the for the contract f- at, at the at the very end, okay, yeah. uh, and that's one of the main drivers of value for money under PPP, and then. There are questions certainly about uh, the extent of risk transfer or the degree to which the private sector is taking on risk. This points us, you know, to pointed us to the conclusion that we cannot in any way uh, have a great, uh, be confident that this will yield uh, what we consider to be value for money or a cost efficient uh, provision of this vital, vital infrastructure. And so that's the national problem plan, which kind of really uh, brings a lot of these, you know, the, the, these kind of issues into into focus. But the discussion that we've had today would suggest that we are very um, anti, we'll say anti PPP, as it were. But I, I don't think that would be the case. Actually, I believe that PPP is an awful lot of virtue and a lot of sure. uh, and, and, and a lot of potential, but only if it's governed uh, uh, correctly. Okay. And all those elements of governance are. The ones that we talked about, competition for contracts, uh, risk transfer, uh, and they can only re- and um, to a large degree, uh, public decision makers, you know, be it politicians or, or civil servants or people working procuring authorities that are held accountable for the decisions that they actually made and this is one of the big issues with all infrastructure procurement and it's not a, just a PPP problem. People get kind of. Uh, excited about PPP because a lot of the details around commercial contracts are hidden and so on and that's absolutely the case but the track record around transparency and openness around other public investments by the traditional means are not easily uh, accessed uh, so I think that if you know if PPP are a new model and something that we'll use more and more going down the line mm-hmm. well we should actually take advantage of the the the, the, the uh, the aspects that can drive these efficiencies, but they will only really materialise if there's a degree of openness and accountability that, that, that's required. So is there a good example then of a PPP in Irish context that worked particularly well? It's, it's very... Or one that, to be able to judge it, you need to have access to a lot of the different figures. So sure, yeah. the only... A, a big contrast between ourselves and the UK has actually been the lack of kind of any major review right. um, of... The performance of PPP that actually has access to all of the required information, the data, the financial figures, etc. So the CNAGs, it, it did conduct a review into the pilot schools project, um, so a grouped bundle of schools, but that was back in 2004. Right. There has been no a major review by the Comptroller and Auditor General, CNAG or any other body of PPP. In recent years, 
the Public Accounts Committee has started scrutinising these things and requesting postgraduate reviews. A lot more has come into the public domain. Um, Deeper and other bodies have started publishing reports on PPP. But if you look across the waters of the UK, the National Audit Office and HM Treasury, they've published its 50 or 67 major reviews into the performance of PPP. And I think... If we really wanted to answer that question, Ireland, you would need that type of a very detailed review um, of a number of different projects or, you know, the entire programme today. And, and that just simply hasn't happened. Uh, it's, it's worth taking into taking into account that in the UK, you know, they've had over 700 PPP yeah. projects signed off, whereas in, in Ireland, you're literally talking in the region of about 30. OK, if you exclude the water service PPPs, which weren't privately financed. Um, but... Having said that, uh, in the UK, PPPs have more or less dried up, really, in terms of being used as a procurement option. That tells a story in itself. So just yesterday at the Tory party conference, um, it was announced that the Tory government were um, planning on investing a lot of money in new hospitals over, over, over the coming years. Uh, but very interestingly, and I picked this up on the news item, very specifically, they are not using the PFI option. Uh, because of problems with the PFI. So PFI is... PFI, sorry, is, P, is, is PPP in the UK, yeah. essentially. Oh, the Private Finance Initiative. Uh, and that will say political decision uh, is informed by the accumulation of evidence uh, that is in the public domain that was put together largely by independent auditors like the National right. Audit Office in the UK as well as a, a very vociferous uh, constituency of academics who, who've analysed PPP inside out uh, albeit often on the basis of pretty limited information but I think the bottom line here is that there's a, there, it appears that PPP has gone out of fashion in the country that it was identified most closely with it uh, but I it doesn't really... Um, for, for me, it, it doesn't alter the fact that PPP is a solution is offered as an alternative to a, a pretty flawed approach to um, procuring infrastructure, infrastructure, which is traditional procurement. Uh, and even though it appears we have gone out of fashion, I think it can still actually work to a degree if, but only if, um, they're properly managed. Uh, and you, we get over this hurdle that you mentioned at the very start about the higher cost of private finance, which is easier said than done. Yeah. Okay. Now that's a good round of of uh, how to effectively implement PPP in in that context. Um, it's hard to talk about PPP without talking about roads and infrastructure, and that's probably the most salient example. So the PPP structure probably would have meant that a lot of projects got off the ground quicker, or perhaps had had benefits. Maybe you can talk us through potential benefits, but. How do these weigh up against... Okay, um, well in the motorway sector in particular, Owen and I, have, we've actually um, done our best to analyse the performance of the early... Really, we have two phases of motorway infrastructure PPPs. The first phase is tolled motorways. Mm-hmm. So the likes of the Limerick Tunnel um, will be the toll, you know, the, the M7 there at Port Leeds, you know, there's about seven, or I think it was eight different projects that had tolls attached to them. Mm-hmm. Since... Um, 2010 effectively all motorway projects are on availability based uh, contracts where there's no tolls it's just the government almost like a mortgage paying the private sector um, for the, the availability of that uh, motorway for the next 25, 30 wh- however many years it is um, I mean the early tolled motorways I mean th- why were they built well at the time we'd wanted the I think the lowest amount of uh, net re- motorway infrastructure um, yeah. Um, in terms of the density of, uh, of of our road network, and there was a real pressing need with the 
with the economy booming as it did to, to mm. invest in infra- this infrastructure. So PPP um, was seen as a way of um, doing that. Um, but it's it's very quickly gone away from the use of tolls. And a lot of that is down to the, the difficulties around traffic forecasting. So those contracts, when the firms are competing for them, they're obviously competing based on their forecasts of how many people will be using them. And if they're aggressively trying to um, win those contracts, they obviously have a, an incentive to maybe um, overestimate the amount of uh, traffic that they think will use that road and to put in a lower cost bid. And that happened on a, a number of projects. But the crisis obviously kicking in meant that a lot of these projects that were suddenly becoming operational in 08, 09, 2010 in particular, but had been signed in 2007, okay, um, were based on... Hugely uh, optimistic uh, forecasts around traffic. And there's a number of them in in serious financial difficulties. I mean, I think the Waterford Bypass one um, has something like over 140, 150. I can't remember the figure, but it's a massive amount of accumulated losses. And it's currently in discussions, negotiations with its senior lenders around a restructuring deal. Uh, And I think the the government is now far more wary based on the experience with the difficulty around forecasting uh, and... and, uh, the oh, that transfer be, of risk that, yeah. that they've, they've moved immediately away to the availability base and even companies themselves bidding for these contracts didn't want to be taking on the risk of that traffic not materialising it seems like though that's the risk they entered into that contract they took on the risk and they lost the yeah. bet basically yeah but there was an, there was actually an interesting paper by um, it's uh, Richard Burke in WIT and a I think it was Stemi Demirag in the UK, and they actually interviewed um, for three of those toll road projects, some of the bidders, the special purpose vehicle companies that that operate these companies, and some of the quotes that came out of those interviews. I mean, some of the bidders were effectively just expecting, look, if we get this wrong, we can renegotiate. You know, the, the extent to which actual risk was being transferred there. You know, if we aggressively go after this and it doesn't turn out that way, sure, we can just re- renegotiate it. It's fine. We'll be in a contract and it's locked in at that stage. Uh, you know, see, so, um, there's so that, definitely yeah. that dynamic that's going on uh, when you're dealing with the difficulties around traffic forecasts and, and the actual risk being taken on by the winning bidder uh, if it gets its traffic forecast wrong. Now, that hasn't happened yet in Ireland. There hasn't been a renegotiation yet. Um, but it's not really a surprise that they've they've completely gone away from the told kind of um, okay. user charge uh, type motorway contracts and moved to availability to try and eliminate all of the, the messing around um, in terms of traffic forecasting and risk. And that, is, that has been the case internationally. There is an international trend away from, say, the transfer of demand risk right. uh, and moving towards these more availability-based uh, payments. Uh, and you know what? That actually makes sense because... There's no point, you know, a, a procurement process cannot be optimal. It cannot be efficient if it's based on bids that are wildly optimistic about demand, about traffic flows and so on. And that appears to have happened in, in, in not just in the Irish case, it has yeah. been the international experience. There are some horror stories from Spain where it is nearly nearly all the, the motorway contracts uh, have been renegotiated for that for that very reason. Just ju- you know, just to provide one a, a single example, uh, in a sense. Um, it's reassuring that uh, the evidence, as far as we're aware, there has 
there hasn't been any renegotiations on the, on the motorway contracts and the, uh, the transport infrastructure Ireland is, you know has, seems to be sticking to the terms of the contract so far uh, and it'll, if, if it does happen that one of these project companies gets into financial difficulty it'd be interesting to see who pays who pays for it as you know the lenders yeah. um, beyond the hook um, or, or, or will there be will there be a bailout but it's one well worth uh, looking out for uh, over the coming years to see how this actually plays out uh, but it does come back you know to the points we made at the very beginning getting these risk allocation mechanisms right in the terms of a contract is easier said than done uh, yeah. and you know governments uh, they face trade-offs you know there's, a, there's an urgency around the need to get these assets built so they're very keen to enter into the contracts uh, and they might get them built but you might be storing up trouble for future generations down yeah. the line because these are long-term contracts. And that's what makes this area an interesting one to study, uh, notwithstanding the fact that it can be frustrating because a lot of this information is hard to, is, is hard to get your hands on. Um, OK, so maybe just for the last few minutes then to wrap up, you've done some work on Aircom and this is something that a lot of people will, will, will be familiar with. Um, of course, it, it, I always think that, that these, these are things that, that are happened yesterday, but it's actually quite a while ago. But um, it's 20 years ago now since yeah. the location 20, of Aircom. 20 so years I, last July. So I remember I was in school at the time when, when Aircom was privatised and everybody was talking about, are you, it wasn't, are you buying Aircom shares? How many are you buying? And some people were, 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 were pouring money and everything to buy shares, which, which is, is, is craziness. But I suppose the first place to start then is, um, why was Aircom privatised in the first place? What was the rationale? Look, there's, there's a lot of different factors. Um, you know, if you look at what was happening in the wider European telecom sector, obviously the entire market was in the, was in the process of being liberalised in the 1990s and uh, full liberalisation and the opening up of competition of the European telecom sector um, I think was due to occur in 1996 and we had a small derogation until I think the 1st of January 1998 in Ireland. So you had that going on in the background in terms of a previously monopolistic industry being liberalised um, and the kind of idea of us was the sleepy former incumbents suddenly being woken up to the forces of competition would require maybe some private, even if in the form of a strategic alliance or, you know, but but basically need to be freed from its shackles in order to compete, to compete in this new world. So there's an element of what was happening on the liberalisation side of things in Europe again, also there was a big wave of privatisation beginning to happen, and uh, across a number of um, utility sectors, but chiefly, especially because of the dot-com bubble that we saw in the late 1990s, a massive amount of the privatisation revenues that were generated in Europe came from the flotation of stakes in the, the you know the what was the the national incumbent telecoms operator. Uh, so that was a, a European dynamic that was going on. And we were no different in Ireland in terms of our evolution. And the government's stance at the time was that, look, if Telecom Erin is really going to survive in this newly liberalised environment, if it's going to be completely freed up to, to pursue its own commercial strategic objectives, the only way it'll be free to do so is if it's a private entity. Um, and at the same time then, because of a bit of the dot-com bubble vibe going on, just like you were alluding to there. Um, Mary O'Rourke, the Minister for Public Enterprise at the time, so there was a big opportunity there to, almost like Thatcher in the in the 80s, a kind of a popular capitalism approach. Let's create uh, a, a democracy of small shareholders uh, and, and open up this share issuing to, uh, to all citizens. 
and really make it a company of the people in that sense. And it was a huge advertising campaign, if you think back, yeah. uh, in terms of um, trying to entice people to, to invest and uh, to purchase shares in this company. I think about 1.2 million people registered interest and about yeah. 580,000 actually ended up purchasing shares. So that's a massive par- portion of the population. So you, you had a lot of that going on too. And, and obviously, I think the top management of the company was in favour. So all of those factors... Um, really kind of met in a perfect confluence of things that pushed towards the, the, the privatisation of the company. But what set us apart from the rest of Europe, so we were unique in this regard, was we were the only country that at the point of flotation, um, the government sold its entire stake in the company. If you look at what happened in every other European country, the UK's difference because they they, they, they privatised BT back in the 1980s in different stages. But for most other Western European countries, um, governments would have floated an initial stake and then gradually over time, they would have, you know, sold um, a, another chunk, another tranche, another tranche over time as the, as the market developed and competition developed uh, and they could, uh, well, more accurately price as well um, the, the, the tranche of shares that they wanted to sell. Um, or if they sold their entire shareholding, they kept what was called a golden share. A golden share is basically a veto over any undesirable change in ownership. Yeah. But when it came to Ireland, and the government came to the flotation of the um, the um, company in 1999, in July 1999, it had always been the case. They'd said all along, look, they were going to sell about 30% because... Um, the Comp Source Consortium, KPN and Telia, um, which had purchased 20% of the company in 1996 they were able to exercise an option to get another 15%. Employees got a, an, uh, an employee share ownership plan of 14.9%. So the government had 50.1%, a majority stake to play around with. Yeah. And it had never said it was going to sell its entire shareholding. And then suddenly, in the final month, it suddenly announced it was selling it all. Now, maybe that was because they could see there was huge valuation being put on companies at almost the peak of the dot-com bubble. But by them selling their all of their shares not retaining any kind of a golden share or a, a, a blocking minority stake or just some kind of veto over undesirable changes in ownership. That's effectively been the, I suppose, the the main issue that's caused all the problems we've seen today. Obviously, they can't see into the future, but the fact that we haven't been able to prevent the highly leveraged buyouts by private equity groups um, that we saw in 2001 and again in 2006 mm. that led to the eventual... Um, you know, the company going into uh, examinership uh, and going bust. Um, All of that was purely because at that time we made that decision to sell everything in one go without separating out the network element from the retail side of business. So so it was sold off and then the private equity group had a leveraged buyout. um, And that happened on two occasions, I think. Yeah, so effectively... Everything was fine for the first, well, not everything was fine, <laughs> but in ter- everyone goes on about the share price. But if you actually look back for a couple of weeks after the, the IPO, share the up. share price went up. Yeah. And if you, if you calculate under, you know, underpricing, the underpricing of the share based on its IPO price and its, and its price of the close of trading on the very first day, I think it was something like 18%. There was a right. significant underpricing of Aircom's flotation uh, IPO price. It's only, obviously then, if you fast forward a couple of months, 
the dot-com bubble, everything that... It wasn't necessarily a problem that Aircom... Everyone looked at Aircom and said, it's a highly inefficient company mm-hmm. and all these. It was just the wider the market. market dynamic. Yeah. The share price started to plummet. Um, and it was around about 2000 where I think the company would have been under pressure. Obviously, small shareholders that had held on to these shares were very unhappy. Mm-hmm. And they were approached by Vodafone, uh, who made an offer for the, the mobile business, Aircel at the time. Yeah. And... Um, they decided, and again, it was a bizarre decision because the, it was an all-share offer by Vodafone and there was a break clause where if Vodafone's shares had fallen below a certain price by the time that sale was meant to happen, that they could actually pull from the sale of Aerosol to Vodafone. And the Vodafone's price was well below that break price yes. at the time that the sale went through, but they still went ahead because, again, maybe the management were under pressure in terms of needing to get some kind of return back to small shareholders. But that um, that was led to the kind of breakup of the firm. So Aircel was demerged, sold to Vodafone, and it was only then that the remaining fixed line business, mm-hmm. uh, so the actual, the copper network, etc., uh, the remaining business outside of mobile suddenly became open to offers. And then we saw the, the kind of, um, the rival bids between Dennis O'Brien's E-Island Consortia and Tony O'Reilly's Valencia Consortia. And in 2001, it was um, Valen- uh, Tony Riley's Valencia Consortium that conducted a highly leveraged buyout um, of the company, which loaded on, I think it was $2.2 billion in debt as part of that buyout. So just to explain that to a lot of people who might not understand. Um... Okay, well, the, basically, I can't remember the exact price that was put on the business, but let's, I think it was, let's say it's about $3 billion. So right. when they put paid $3 billion for Aircom, which was the, now just the remaining fixed-line business, yeah. About six to eight hundred million of that was actual equity invested by yeah. the Valencia Consortium, and the rest was debt. Yeah. But using obviously the existing assets uh, of the company as collateral. So, in so, term in terms of Aircom's balance sheet, it went from I think having um, net debt, uh, negative net debt. It had more cash than it had debt at the time. Right. To suddenly having over mm-hmm. two billion in debt. That's not debt that's been raised to invest in, you know, uh, replacing bits of infrastructure or new exchanges, nothing like that. It's just purely as a result of that LBO. And then they went around pursuing, basically, strategies of cash extraction. I think within 18 months, they'd paid themselves a special dividend of over 500 million euro. So they'd almost all their money back straight away. And there's a lot of cash extraction. And then they... The, the usually the goal of these types of private equity um, LBOs, the le- leverage buyouts, is to exit in three to five years. And that's exactly what they did. They refloated Aircom in 2004, mm. made obviously a nice return on their investment. But the killer blow was in 2006, a second LBO by Babcock and Brown occurred. Mm. And that added on another 2.2 billion. And now Aircom's debt was the highest of any. Um, if you looked at its net debt to earnings, EBITDA, earnings before interest, um, depreciation tax and amortization. Mm. It was off the charts, the highest in Europe, way beyond yeah. what's um, sustainable for any uh, company. And I suppose then the crisis hits all of those things. And by 2010, it effectively went into um, uh, examinership. T- STT, which was a Singapore-based uh, company, they did buy it for something like 140 million, I think it was 2009, because of yeah. its debt burden. 
which was just basically gone effectively by uh, yeah. 2011, I think, was when it went into examiner. But the fallout from that story, I mean, yeah, in a kind it's of huge. the circle, we, we, kind of, we can go around, we're coming around in the circle again here, yeah. okay, is that as a result of that build up of debt and the need to pay that debt off, the company didn't invest adequate resources in its fixed line infrastructure. So, in all the league tables of uh, availability of broadband infrastructure, uh, Ireland was at the bottom of the pile throughout the uh, 2000s and, 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 and it's still fairly low in terms of the penetration uh, of was we'll a um, fibre optic cable and so on our high speed broadband um, and you know in a sense this brought the government uh, to the point where it had to go and intervene again uh, in the market because of market failure and hence the national broadband plan yeah. you know so all this can be traced back uh, to the fallout from 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 the aircon privatization, and as Donald said, it's funny. It, it's not funny, but it, it, it it's it's odd that it came down to one really uh, strange, hard to fathom, but really poor decision when that was to sell the company in its entirety, uh, yeah. because the government had lost control over what, of course, was a strategic asset. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though the circumstances are different now are around the national broadband plan. Uh, under the, you know this gap funding model that they're going to use, the infrastructure, albeit just cable, you know, uh, you know, not necessarily the mass and poles, etc. Yeah. Um, but uh, it will it will be owned by the private sector at the end of the contractual period, and it's in, in a sense there's a degree of history repeating itself, and it's the kind of um, public policy decision that really has you scratching your head about whether this is really in the interests uh, of the country, particularly in the long term. You yeah. know, I mean, clearly the decision to privatise back in 1999 was driven by this frenzy, you know, from a political perspective where people could make money and this would make us really popular. But you might, or you may or may not remember um, when in the run up to the election, and I think it was it the two, 2002 or 2007 election, Fine Gael actually suggested that they compensate the shareholders in Aircom for the losses they made. I mean, crazy stuff, okay? But it just shows Very you what kind, thing what kind of a populist, <laughs> <laughs> but it shows you kind of a, a, a political football uh, infrastructure can be. Yeah. And especially you throw, in, throw, throw into the mix the whole idea of private ownership, privatisation, the involvement of private equity groups, it gets, it can get very messy. You know? Yeah, no, I always think, so my own field being electricity and when that was privatised and everything was unbundled, generation and then you have the infrastructure and infrastructure is a natural monopoly yeah. and that, I imagine that should be the same for, for telecoms. I was about to make that point. <laughs> I mean, no, no one is saying that the government should have retained ownership over all aspects of the telecommunication, you know, as in the services, mobile. Of course, there's going to be some competitive aspects. And mobile has obviously um, developed a huge amount. And there's been lots of other competition around different technologies um, yeah. in the telecom sector. But for the National Broadband Plan, um, you know, and, and the, the kind of interventions before that, like the Metropolitan Area Networks Plan, they've all been trying to target the market failure that emerged in the uh, fixed line infrastructure section. So to an extent, the government learned their lessons when Board Gosh was sold because they sold the energy business, the retail side of the business, and they retained the network, the trans, you know, the gas transmission um, uh, network in public ownership under Gaslink. Um, I think... In the post-crisis period, they had initially talked maybe about selling a stake in the ESB, but quickly rolled back on that. And at the time, there was a lot of talk, too, about the separation of the the transmission distribution grid 
from the retail side. Mm. Um, but it, it's exactly the same type of thing with with Aircom. If if we had sold the entire company but retained maybe ownership of a, an unbundled network element of that, um, then we wouldn't be in the same situation that we're in right now because we, um, it's hard to say exactly what the counterfactual is and how, exactly how would it would would have turned out. But for sure, it would not have been the case that private equity groups would have gotten their hands on it, sweated those assets, extracted as much as they could from them. They had loads of sale and leaseback type things going on, not invested as much as they otherwise would. We were, I think, with a two year lag between the first rollout of broadband in Ireland and every other European country. And we've been just constantly playing catch up. Those types of things, no matter how inefficient you might want to assume, if you're of that ideology, public enterprise might be, would, would definitely not have been the case if we'd at least had some control and say over the future direction of that fixed line infrastructure. Yeah. Now, it seems that the incentives are all wrong because if you have a private company, they don't have an incentive to develop it at all. Yeah, yeah. and you see this a lot in the UK in particular. There's been a lot of studies done on different sectors there, especially in water and areas that were privatised a long time ago. And they've, if you look at the balance sheets of these companies, there's been a lot of financial engineering going on, not enough investment and bizarrely for the UK, there's um, been some fairly conservative type of uh, commentators saying that they may have to consider a return to mutualisation or a public ownership type option for some of these companies because not enough has been invested in it. And it's yeah. the market failures now all around the how do we get private companies to invest, particularly in, say, rural areas um, at the pace that we want to require them to. It's very hard to incentivise that as a regulator. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Owen and, and Donald, I'm conscious of time. Uh, thanks very much for that very interesting discussion. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it. If you like the podcast, remember to follow us on at Irish Econ Pod on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. If you get a chance, a five star Apple review would, would really help. So thanks to everybody. Thanks again, and all the best.